This, this, this is KU. KUT. KUT, Austin. Stop. This is KUT. I'm Jennifer Staten. Texas politics has always been filled with colorful and intriguing characters. Austinite Jeff Kerr has written several historical accounts of some of those figures, but for his latest work, he decided to try fiction. Lamar's Folly is a fictitious account of the rise and fall of Mirabu Lamar and the battles with his political and personal rival, Sam Houston. Kerr and I talked recently about what drew him to the rivalry between those two presidents of the Republic of Texas. The main reason is, I, I, in researching my last book, Seat of Empire, I found Mirabel Lamar to be such an interesting character that I wanted to write more about him. And I toyed with the idea of doing a biography, but realized it was not feasible for me to do the traveling and take the time off of work that it would take to really do the proper research. And I thought, well, I could, I could write a fictional story, and, and there's a lot of material there to work with as well. The reason I was fascinated by Lamar in particular is because he seems such a dichotomy. As an adult, as president of the Republic of Texas, uh, he was responsible for the, uh, really, the genocidal eviction of the Comanche from Texas. And yet, when I was doing my research, I came across something he had written for school when he was about 13 or 14. The assignment was take a side and then argue whether or not um, Europeans were justified in conquering North America. And Lamar said they were not. He said, absolutely not. Might does not make right. And this was a a bloody example of the tyrant coming in and and killing people uh, unjustifiably. And yet 20 years later, he did exactly that. I wonder if that was if they were just assigned to take one side or the other. If he genuinely thought, no way of genuinely believe that. And I've suspected that as well. Maybe the teacher said, okay, you have to take this side. Nevertheless, it's a fascinating thing to read. It's right over there in the state archives. Um, And that... When I first saw that, I was just I was just thrilled because I thought, wow, here is a really interesting character. So what was it like for you as a researcher, a writer, an author to to have, obviously, the set of facts and research to work with, but to know that you had some wiggle room to um, enhance, change, embellish? What was the process like then for you to, to write fiction, knowing that you've written so much history before? Well, it it was indeed a bit of a shift, and at first it was a little bit difficult for me because all my life I've read historical fiction or seen movies based on history and gotten annoyed with things that aren't quite right, but I've come to realize that it's absolutely impossible just to transcribe history into fiction and make it interesting. So you have to cut some corners, or not necessarily cut corners, but you have to change things, eliminate characters, compress other characters. Uh, I did that in this book. What I kept thinking back to, um, several years ago, I attended a a sneak showing of Apocalypto uh, before it was released, and Mel Gibson was in town to talk about it. And somebody asked him just that, about, you know, how how much do you care about being historically accurate? And his quote was, I get as close as I can, but I will never sacrifice drama for historical accuracy. And now I understand that. Do you feel the same way? I do. You have to make it entertaining. So you get as close as you can without... You know, taking too many liberties or too too huge of liberties, it has to be plausible, uh, but it also has to be entertaining. So let's talk about Maribu Lamar. You described a little bit earlier the, the anecdote about that dichotomy in him, even as a young man. Just tell us a little bit about him. Well, he was widely regarded, and this is probably true, as, as a very intelligent, bright guy. And yet uh, the difficult thing or the unfortunate thing for him was he spoke very slowly. He was not regarded as, you know, tremendously handsome. He was kind of short and frumpy. 
And a lot of people came away from their first meeting with him thinking that he was not particularly bright because of the way he spoke. He put him in front of a group of people, too, and he would get nervous and him and haw and, and just really have a lot of trouble. And yet uh, he was much more educated than most of the politicians in Texas at the time. Uh, he was also, I think, unfortunately, a very self-righteous man and not a good politician in the sense that he let things get under his skin to a larger degree than most other successful politicians. And, of course, the big contrast is with Sam Houston, his arch enemy, not only politically but personally. They absolutely hated each other. But if you just look at one fact, and that is that in those days, these are the two giants of, of Texas politics in the 1840s. People referred to the Houston party and the anti-Houston party. If a political party is named after your opponent, I think you've lost the battle. That was Lamar's unfortunate position. You know, you stand him next to Sam Houston and have a debate or any kind of public appearance, and he would just get slaughtered. All right, well, tell us about, about Sam Houston then. In contrast to Lamar. Oh, Sam Houston. Everybody knows this guy. He's uh, tall, handsome, athletic. The women loved him. Uh, he was a big partier. In fact, this was, uh, you know, he was an alcoholic early in his life. Later on, he cleaned up his act. But he was the life of any party he entered, and his supporters absolutely loved him. Now, his detractors absolutely hated him. Lamar thought he was, uh, you know, a drunkard, a drunken braggart. Probably some truth to that. But Houston thought Lamar was, uh, you know, a dull, self-righteous prig. So you know, there was probably some truth in that as well. My favorite story about the two guys is the uh, the time that um, Lamar was uh, inaugurated as president. An interesting side note, Lamar was the only president to be inaugurated in the city of Houston, which he hated because it was named Houston. Sam Houston was the only president inaugurated in the city of Austin, which he fought very hard against. But uh, in 1838... Um, or 1839, early 1839, Lamar is going to be inaugurated as president. He knows he's going to have to give a speech. Well, he doesn't like giving speeches, but he, I'm sure he worked very hard. He wrote this lengthy speech, and he shows up. He'd probably been practicing it. He's nervous. Uh, you know, he's, going to, he's going to do this and stand up in front of hundreds of people to do this. Well, Sam Houston showed up dressed in clothes from the 1770s. He looked, looked like George Washington. More than one person commented on this. He was wearing knee breeches and, and brightly polished shoes with silver buckles. He had a powdered wig on. He was already the talk of, ev of everybody before Lamar ever took the stage. As outgoing president, Sam Houston was invited to give an exaugural speech. He never turned down an opportunity to speak publicly. He went on for two or three hours, which you know totally shocks people nowadays. But back then, there weren't a lot of entertainment options, so this was not all that unusual. But what was unusual about Houston's speeches was that people were right on the edge of their seats the whole time. So he was interrupted dozens of times by applause and cheers and women swooning and the whole bit. And as he finishes up, he turns to Lamar, makes a big elaborate bow, and says, I now turn the reins of state over to my worthy successor, Mr. Mirabeau Bonaparte Lamar. And he sits down. And I can imagine steam shooting out of Lamar's ears at this. He made it through the, uh, the oath of office okay, but then as he's sitting there waiting to be introduced, Lamar gets really nervous. He takes his speech out of his pocket, finds his secretary, and says, I don't feel very good. I'm going home. You read this. And he left. And his poor secretary, a guy named Algernon Thompson, had to stand up and read this speech that he was hardly familiar with. And, um, you know, I, I imagine by the end of it, everybody was off in the bars drinking by then. I know it's not entirely relevant, but I'm thinking about these two men and I'm thinking about sort of transporting them to modern times and sort of putting them in front of media and what might happen to them 
with all all of our media environment today. Lamar would not have made it, I'm convinced. Sam Houston, I think, would have been successful even now. What he had that uh, successful politicians have now is an incredibly thick skin. Um, and I liken him to Bill Clinton in that respect. And this is not about politics. I'm talking about just just about their their personal characteristics. He could ignore anything. And that's what I think it takes to be a successful politician. That's why I couldn't go into politics. The best example of that is um, there's a story about Sam Houston sitting at his desk. A man storms into his office very angry and slapped a piece of paper on the desk and said, "Um, my friend is challenging you to a duel. And without even looking at the man, Houston took the paper, slipped it into a drawer and said, please tell the gentleman he's number 14 on the list. I mean, that's that's how calm he was in the face of that kind of pressure. So the novel is Lamar's Folly. What's the folly? The literal folly is a uh, about a six-foot palisade that was built around the Texas Capitol at President Lamar's urging in the late 1830s. Uh, most people thought this was kind of ridiculous. It was meant to keep Indians out of the Capitol, but it was only about five or six feet tall, so you could simply climb over the thing if you wanted to. And people began referring to it. I think it first showed up in a newspaper as Lamar's Folly. I thought it an apt um, metaphor for the book title because of what Lamar tried to do as president. When he was here in 1838 campaigning for president, he stood on the hill where the capital is now and looked towards the river and said, gentlemen, this shall be the seat of future empire. He did not use that word empire lightly. He actually meant that. And as president, he intended to incorporate more territory into the Republic of Texas until hopefully one day it stretched all the way to the Pacific Ocean, which sounds kind of stupid to us today, but in those days, the United States was no further west than Texas. So, yeah, it could have happened. The plan was to um, first grab New Mexico by diverting the, the trade that traveled over the Santa Fe Trail to Austin. In those days, there was this rich trade that went from uh, Mexico and New Mexico up towards St. Louis overland. It took weeks and weeks to get there, and then they put it on boats and pulled it up rivers uh, towards the east coast where all the big markets were. Just the transport costs alone really ate into your profits. So Lamar said, well, what we can do is we can convince guys to come to Austin. We're going to build this big city here. We are at the head of navigation of the Colorado River. People really believed the Colorado could be a navigable river in those days. They'll come here. They'll uh, load everything onto barges, float them down to the Gulf, put them on fast ships, and sail them around to the East Coast. We'll cut this transport time in half. We'll cut costs in half. A lot of people will get rich in the process. His plan to do that was to send a commission to New Mexico inviting them to participate in this trade. But he also sent a secret letter inviting Governor Armijo of New Mexico to um, throw off the shackles of Mexico and join with Texas and become part of the Republic of Texas. It didn't go well. This is the Santa Fe expedition. The, The reasons it didn't go well is really where the folly comes in because Lamar, like everybody else, thought that Santa Fe was maybe 400 miles away. A little further. Yeah. (laughs) They thought that there was a well-marked trail. They had been told this. There was not. They had been told there was lots of grass on the way for the animals to eat. There's not a blade of grass in a lot of places on the way. And they had been told there were lots of watering holes also. Anybody that's driven through the panhandle knows that's not true. And finally, they totally ignored any kind of threat from Indians because, you know, we are white settlers and we can beat those guys. He sent this commission. Uh, there were about oh, about 300 guys, a couple hundred um, merchants, and about 100 uh, soldiers along. And the problem was Armijo did not see this as a peaceful 
delegation coming to visit him, he saw it as an armed invasion. Texas and Mexico were still at war. There was no treaty signed after the Battle of San Jacinto. By the time our guys got there, half the horses were dead because there was no grass. They'd eaten a bunch of them because they'd run out of food as well. Just an utter disaster. They lost several people to the Indian attack. They were starving. They were, you know, on foot. It was no problem at all for Armijo to round these guys up and then march them at gunpoint down to Mexico City. Many of them died along the way. You know, this word got back to, to Lamar right as he was leaving office. So everybody pretty much hated him by the time he was uh, going out as president. Describe the the impact that this had then on his him and his legacy. I think it's the major fact, the major reason he does not have a good legacy. And the positive spin on his career as president has always been that he's the father of Texas education, which is true. He did some things to kind of get public education going in Texas. And yet, you know, stacked up against the, the uh, complete disaster that was the Santa Fe Exposition, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it didn't look good. I just wanted to read from you something that I, I read about Lamar's folly, and I'm interested in kind of your response to this. So Kirkus Review says, Mirabu Lamar, as portrayed in Lamar's folly, has a what they describe as Trumpian view of things, referring to President Trump, and an impulsive way of carrying out his desires. I think that's somewhat true. I don't know about impulsive so much as uh, pig-headed. I mean, he was not going to change his mind based on what anybody else thought. He knew what was right, and by gosh, he, that's what he was going to make happen. That, again, is probably not a quality that serves a politician well, and it certainly did not serve him well in this in this particular case. There are a lot of grand themes at play in the novel. I mean, right and wrong, power, jealousy. I mean, was there some fun in writing historical fiction? There was a lot of fun. And I I knew that in bringing about Lamar's downfall, it, it probably should be not only professional, which was the disaster of his presidency, but also on a personal level. And so I completely invented this um, affair or hinted affair with a married woman in the novel, I, I had it where he intentionally sends the woman's husband off on the doomed Santa Fe expedition, the thinking being that you know he'd, he'd have more time to spend with her. This is not said overtly, but that's the obvious uh, conclusion you would draw when you read it. And that was kind of fun to invent. It's also a little makes me a little nervous because there might be people that object to that sort of thing, and especially the people who insist on historical accuracy in a, in a historical novel because there's not a shred of evidence that anything like that ever happened. You wanted a personal parallel to the professional arc of events in yes. his life. At the end of the book, I wanted him to be at absolute bottom, both personally and professionally. And he got there. He did. He made it. <laughs> what is your next project, Texas history-wise, Austin history-wise? What, what do you have ahead? Well, I don't know. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm kind of engaged in some other efforts right now. I've, I don't have any specific books in mind. I've, I've written a few other novels that have not been able to find the light of day yet, uh, so I may continue working on those. But I've got some other non-writing uh, projects that I'm engaged in. I'm curious, even without a specific book project in mind, if there's another slice of Austin or Texas history that you're maybe came up in writing Lamar's Folly or that you've just sort of always wanted to explore that you haven't had the chance to explore yet? Yeah, and before I wrote Lamar's Folly, I actually had had thought about writing a history, a a nonfiction book about Jacob Fontaine, who appears in Lamar's Folly. Jacob Fontaine was real, 
He was a slave who probably was present when Lamar made his statement about this being the future seat of empire. Uh, He was owned by a man named Edward Fontaine, who later became the first pastor of St. David's Church uh, before moving back to Mississippi. But Jacob stayed in Austin and became one of the early religious leaders in town, at least for the African-American community. He founded, if I remember correctly, at least six churches and um, you know, was a very respected man by the time of his death. He's interred over at Oakwood Cemetery, and uh, the, the precise location of the grave, unfortunately, is not known. But if I could have found enough information about him, I would have, I would have definitely taken that on. Well, and both of those men show up in Lamar's Folly, and it's interesting because we get sort of both of their descriptions and perspectives on the same event, but through different sets of eyes, which is another great look at just the history history of the times. Uh, it's written in first person from Edward Fontaine's perspective. And I'd written about a third of the book, and I realized this is not the whole story. And I've always been sympathetic to the plight of the common people that do most of the things that you read about in history books that you never hear about and the effects it has on their lives. You know, we talk about Edwin Waller building the city of Austin. Well, he didn't hammer any nails in. What he did was order um, white foremen to then go order slaves to do the work. And Jacob Fontaine was one of those guys. So I thought, well, what would things look like from his perspective? And, of course, it's completely different. And I, I hope I'm... I've somewhat captured what that experience would be. Um, I'm not African-American myself, so it's, it's probably difficult to do that uh, to everybody's satisfaction. But that was my intent, was just to show that, uh, you know, you, people view things differently depending on their station in life. And experience things very differently. I mean, there's some vivid descriptions of, for example, when they arrive in Texas and the different sleeping accommodations they have. I mean, yeah. Jacob's in the barn. Edward's and in the house. Edward's in the house. And in a bed. They're they're sleeping different places. They're eating different food. They're not allowed. Well, Jacob's not allowed near the house, in the house. I mean, those are very vivid descriptions of what life was like. And it may not have been like that for every person, but I had read the, I read the slave narratives, which were recollections gathered in the 1930s about people that had lived in slave times, uh, personal recollections of theirs, or, or the, whose parents had lived as slaves. And so I had some some idea about what things might have been like and what a brutal existence it was. And that's what I tried to convey in the book here. All of that really speaks to kind of what is Texas history and what is taught as Texas history and conversely what's left out of what what people are learning in school as to what, what the history of our state really is like. I would agree with that 100%. Uh, as, an, as a person growing up in Texas, I took fourth grade and seventh grade Texas history I loved it. I thought it was fascinating, but I learned the hero worship stories that were that were told in those days and may still be told. I didn't learn anything about the um, you know about the realities of the impact on a lot of people, and I only learned this later on as an adult when I started educating myself by reading books. It's it's not the pretty picture that that is taught to grade schoolers. I don't necessarily want to perpetuate today's political divide, but. It does occur to me, or I guess I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts about if if that Lamar-Houston relationship and differentiation, if, if you see that playing out today, or if you see who's attracted to which of them or who, who those men resonate with in our modern times. 
Well, that, yeah, that's a topic that fascinates me because I this caught me completely off guard when I first started writing about Houston and Lamar. You know, I figured that people might disagree on how good a president Lamar was or how good a president Houston was, but this was all 150 years ago, and it would be just historical arguments, kind of like arguing who was better, Babe Ruth or Ty Cobb in baseball. But it is not like that at all. And there are many people out there that are extremely passionate about whether or not Houston was a good man or a good president or Lamar was a good president. And what I've found in the feedback that I've gotten from folks and what I've seen in my reading is that it tends to break down along party lines with uh, the right leaning more towards Lamar and the glorified view of Texas history and the left leaning a little bit more towards Houston and the more realistic view of Texas history. And that's a generalization. I know there's lots and lots of exceptions out there. I've done no scientific study, but that's just been my impression from, from what, you know, when people talk to me or raise objections to things they might have read. Any sense of why it breaks down that way? I, I don't know for sure, but I, I sense that it, in part it's because of Lamar's attitude that Texas expansion, um, Texas was the greatest place on earth, that sort of thing. Houston uh, was more of a pragmatist, and he's the one that actually had to resign the governorship because he did not agree with secession from uh, from the Union. Jeff Kerr is the author of Lamar's Folly. And Jeff, we thank you so much for your time and your discussion today. Well, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Jennifer Staten, KUT News.